listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. tired of looking at this you can always you know look at deer or whatever out there um, I wanted to discuss a, f- a few things tonight and in a real elementary sense kind of go go back to some basics in terms of the teaching the uh, uh, the, the sum total of our suffering of our anguish of our our uh, 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 Suffering, as the Buddha used to like to discuss it, comes from attachment, from clinging, from grasping. So whatever it is you're grasping, that's, that's what's lighting lighten you up. And I can, I can recall this idea of, uh, you know, holding on to outcomes. Like I would, I would set something up and if it didn't hit, then it would create and engender a degree of misery within me. Um, I've gotten a lot better at that over the years, but boy, I still can, still can feel that kind of fire up. The practice, though, is to let go. So it's, I, I, it's always easy, I think, to um, look at somebody who's positing or proposing any of these things and say, oh, easy for you to say. Yeah, of course it is. I'm not saying... That, that it's easy. I'm saying this is the practice. This is the practice. This is the teaching. Um, and there was one little sh- short anecdote that I, I wanted to uh, uh, share with you. Whenever you feel judgment arise in your awareness, you are feeling ego's energetic pull, the Zen teacher said to a group of us in the meditation hall. It was in the late afternoon and I was tired, worried that I might fall asleep during this lady's talk. I wasn't bored with what she was saying. I just wanted a little sleep. Any preference, she went on, can show us where our attachments are. I began to perk up at this comment. Could my judgments help me recognize and better understand my ego's pull? Could my preferences do the same thing? The fog of sleepiness began to fade a bit as I considered her comments. I was judging all the time, and I had all sorts of preferences, but something about what she was saying made sense at a level that was new to me. My hand shot up after the talk concluded. I asked, are preferences the same as judgments? I think it's helpful to see the ego as the sun in a psychological solar system. Preferences are like small planets that have an observable gravitational pull. Judgments are planets as well. They're just bigger and therefore have more pull. It seems so elegant, so simple. I bowed to her in gratitude. Then how do we free ourselves from all the pull? Came another question from across the hall. We're free from any and all forms of judgmental or preferential pull when we can integrate the recognition 
that we are at once the unlimited entirety of the universe and a limited egoic solar system. She paused and let this sink in. All things that orbit around you, she went on, start to shrink when, you, when seen from the enormity of what you really are. You'll see and sense this the more you sit. And then it is my hope that you'll let your enormity express itself through your life. She started to giggle and then bowed, leaving us to make friends with our enormity without any preferences. So, aside from the brilliance of the prose, um, I would point out that the, the uh, um, I would point out that this particular an anecdote, this story, this event was so helpful to me in just recognizing, all right, there's pull. Every time, every time I have a preference, it's a pull. And a preference is gonna start to point me right towards attachment. Any judgment I have, there's gonna be pull. And what's it gonna do? It's gonna pull me towards and point me towards my attachment. So consider what you're clinging to. Consider what outcomes you are clinging to. Put another way, consider outcomes that you are desperately trying to avoid. Because those two are attachments and they are generating suffering. We have no idea what's coming. Yet the mind writes all sorts of scripts about what might happen. And that's not healthy. It increases cortisol levels. It increases, it increases our body's inability to meet challenges. It is the mother of stress. So we do know that death and taxes, according to Ben Franklin, are coming. We do know that there is a tendency for human beings not to take care of themselves. I was reading this great thing. Um, They're pointing out how in these studies that human beings, people will oftentimes forget to take the medications that they're supposed to take to keep them alive or preventive uh, you know, type stuff. They'll miss, they'll miss the dosages. They'll, they'll really, really screw things up. And this is very common. As many of us have learned, the, uh, uh, the science of which, taking which med when is, is it's difficult. It's difficult. But they also found even among the same age bracket that struggles most with taking the appropriate medication at the appropriate time, they were among the best at making sure that their animals were taking the medication that they needed. That their kids, that their, anybody other than themselves and so I think it becomes really important that we begin to look at, I mean, this whole thing is a practice. Compassion goes in both directions, and if it doesn't, it's not compassion, it's an egoic manipulation. If it doesn't come inward to yourself, it really can't go outward except in a very partial way. If we are clinging, we are holding back, we are creating a defensive posture uh, in the face of life's onslaught. And life is going to hit us. It always does. And if it isn't, there will be more. <laughs> you know, 
there will be there will be joy and there will be uh, uh, there will be uh, sadness. I was listening to a, a speech being given at at this uh, baccalaureate celebration where we, you know, a group of seniors uh, are are you know kind of going off. And a baccalaureate, for those of you that uh, aren't familiar with it, it's a actually it's a funeral service for those going uh, out to sea was typically the way it started. So baccalaureate was the way you would you would bless them and the families and everything in case they didn't come back. They at least had they had a funeral, right? Um, now, of course, you don't want to tell this to a group of seniors, uh, a group of seniors in high school. This is your funeral, you know, not, not as uplifting. But uh, what was so fascinating was this, uh, there, there was this one kind of thread that was going through much of what was being said. Uh, all we want to do is be happy. And it's hard right now. It feels like there's so much chaos. Now I get that. But if our goal is happiness, we're doomed because happiness ebbs and flows. Happiness fluctuates. Happiness, you know, it's a roller coaster. Always, always. The practice gives us another option, and that other option I think is far healthier. The other option is, with stillness, with a sitting practice, we begin to observe what pulls us. We begin to observe the psychological solar system. We begin to feel our enormity, which is awareness, which is consciousness. Consciousness goes that way. It only gets bigger. Some of us have even found this to be negative. We become more and more and more conscious, and boy, those days of ignorance, man, they were good old days where I didn't really give a damn, you know, or whatever. It's, it's difficult. And yet, that awareness frees us from the pull. The pull of judgment, the pull of preference. And at that point, we can become steady even when happiness isn't there. And that steadiness, more than happiness, it's deeper joy. It doesn't mean that things don't matter. but we play into this experience a little bit differently with a different set of skills. There's much more openness. At least this is the practice. Easy for me to say, but this is the practice. So with that, practice tonight. Practice not having an agenda, not having an outcome. Practice not worrying, and the way you not you, the way that happens is actually spontaneous. It's not something you do. It's something you, you just let go. You begin to watch the worry. The watcher of the worry is not worried. The worrier is worried, but the observer of the worry, the observer of the worrier, this backing out, where you can see the pull of these planets big and small, and then we can literally become spacious in the way we approach life. So let's give that a shot. I think um, rather than turn all of our chairs around, it might be easier for us to just stay, stay
stay put. Is that okay with you? Okay. All right. Um, so just enjoy. Just enjoy. How are you feeling? Without answering verbally, check in. Check in with this body. Is there holding? If so, get curious about it. How is this mind? Are there repetitive or discursive thoughts or patterns that keep arising? Get curious about those. Get curious about your judgments, your preferences. and the orbits that lead to attachment. Just be still and be aware. So if we were to distill the, the teaching down, and I've said this several times before, but if we were going to distill the, the Buddha's teaching, we would come up with two words, let go. And as I repeatedly say, this is simple, it's just not easy. It's not easy to let go because we're all about hanging on. I mean, if most of us at least, you know, we're hanging on to preserve something we uh, like or hanging on to a dream or hang, hanging on is attachment. And so when we start looking at the, this idea of, so what is the teaching? What is the teaching showing us? What is enlightenment? What is, there's a real simple, simple thing. Somebody who has let go, really let go is no longer suffering. 
So enlightenment, as the Buddha said, is the end of suffering. It is not seeing light beams shine out of people's eyeballs. It's not walking on air or water. It is not levitation. It is not, it's the end of suffering. That's pretty basic, you know? And anyone that can point out how to do that then uh, becomes a, uh, in Buddhist parlance, a bodhisattva or a helpful being. And Well, you don't need to be awake to be a helpful being. Bodhisattvas are sentient beings, okay? Conscious beings. But the end of suffering, if the end of suffering is what awakening is, then how, how is it that we end suffering? Because the Buddha also said that life is suffering. Life is painful, deeply painful. And that there's a cause to this deep pain. And there's also a way to end it. And the way to end it is to go back to those two words, let go. So my, uh, uh, my experience in the, in the uh, monastery was met with this, this great teaching. I thought it was so, so cool because it was so elegant, so simple. Um, my teacher, he would say, okay, don't reach after anything. Don't push anything away. Just meet every experience with total relaxation. And then engage the world from that place of relaxation. And of course, people kind of look at each other like, is that it? Yes! That's it. That is the answer. Whatever question you've got, it's going to take some form of that answer. And if you really think about it, for those of you who've been sitting with uh, Infinite Smile Sangha for a while, um, every single Dharma talk is about that in some way, shape, or form. I've said that every single time we've met. And I will continue to say that every single time. <laughs> so if you want to save yourselves, just, just repeat it. You know, let that be your mantra. Um, of course, then I won't get to see it, which would suck. But I'm not attached. Right. <laughs> uh, but this idea that, you know, there's, there's, there's a cause to this pain, and it's the clinging. The clinging, the grasping. Attachment. I'm not talking once again about healthy attachment, which is to hold your child. You know, it's to, it's to create a bond. A bond is different in a healthy sense than attachment. There are really unhealthy bonds to and unhealthy attachments that we can have, not only internally or intrapersonally, but also psychologically, intellectually, relationally. And so you want to, we want to make sure we can study these, these attachments that we have and recognize how we need to shift them. I'm recognizing now, today I had a very interesting experience. I was at a, um, a baseball game with, or a softball game with, with my girls. And my girls, for the first time, it's the first time they ever did that, Daddy, we're going to go sit with our friends. 
Excellent. Go have a good time. And I was sitting there on the bleachers <laughs> alone, and they were all cracking each other up. That's healthy. They should be doing that. Like, oh. <laughs> Too old. Not cool enough. You know, Dad's badassery just got worn down substantially within the last several hours, folks. Um, but this idea that I can't, I can't hang on to that. I can't sit. No, you're going to sit with me. Or worse, what? I'm not good enough? You want to scar your kids? You start throwing down your immaturity, you know? Um, but for all of us, this, this I think applies in some really, really cool ways. We let go. We let go. We meet our experiences with total relaxation. I was sharing with a friend of mine how I, I had this experience at, uh, at uh, work where um, the second parent uh, came up to me and said, hey, I hear you're not going to be with us next year. I'm like, wait, what? Uh, the, I just heard from somebody at the district office that you're not, no longer going to be principal. Like, well, it's <laughs> news to me. Um, I immediately called down. And they're like, oh my god, no. Of course, you're, you're, that's not the way we roll. McAllister, you're fine. Alright, just checking. But going through that experience of, you know, oh, maybe I don't have this gig anymore. Um, that's fascinating. The stories that are affiliated with the security of paying rent, uh, making sure that I can provide for you know my kids and, and myself and all that stuff, uh, everything kind of just started to pop. And and the I was surprised um, at how focused I became, as opposed to there would have been a time where I would have just spun out of control, gotten pissed, you know, stuff like that. The practice works. I really think it, it just is a kind of an, an encouragement. And this isn't to say, I got tons of stuff I'm always working on in relationship to practice. Um, but the more you do this, I think uh, the easier it can be to move in the world in some ways. In other ways, it can be very, very difficult. I think, um, I love the line, I think Ken Wilber said it, it uh, the world often hurts more. Things hurt more, but they matter less. So we're sensitized. It's as if we no longer have a shell. Uh, this was pointed out to me uh, by my daughter who was talking about hermit crabs, how they grow out of shells, and then for uh, uh, until they can find that new shell, they are very vulnerable to the world um, uh, before they get the new shell. And Boy, sometimes we can feel that way, especially in spiritual work. It's like, wait a minute, if I let go of all this stuff, if I really let go, who am I? Exactly. That's the work. But then I won't have a shell. Exactly. There won't be anywhere to hide. Exactly. It's about being exposed. But that exposure, uh, I've had it described as being like you're on the edge of the cliff. The view from that edge is so amazing. At least that's what the sages and saints have been talking about for these many, many, many years. 
So, awakening, in addition to being the, uh, you know, the end of suffering, which is available, available to all of us as long as we let go, as long as we can no longer reach out for stuff or avoid stuff, and we can meet everything with total relaxation and engage the world, we find ourselves in a place of non-defense. If you've met, met somebody who is incredibly defensive, they are most likely coming at the world from a place of fear. And if you're coming at the world from a place of fear, you are clinging to a perceived future outcome that involves loss. And for those of us that are all about loss, whether it's reputation, or it's livelihood, or it's love, or it's life, whatever. If, if we are coming at the world from the fear of losing those things, we, um, we generate a tremendous amount of what we, we typically call in this group, at least future mind. And that future mind is incredibly destructive. It will slowly but surely kill us. It will tear apart our bodies. And so the practice, again, easy for me to say, the practice is to kind of focus on the present. And you can focus on the present and you can kind of, you know, this gentle, this gentle pull right back to the present occurs whenever we start to get curious about that fear get curious about that, that outcome that we're clinging to. We get curious about the clinging itself. But we really get curious about it. It's not good, huh, yeah, and then move on. It's really actually, we start to feel it. We start to recognize it. We start to meet everything fully. And it's hard for egos that are built on hiding, <coughs> uh, or egos that are, that are uh, uh, predicated on uh, fear. It's all about hiding. It's all about being that crab, getting a new or better shell, and spending as little time exposed as possible. Because if there's that kind of exposure, if there's that kind of vulnerability, the feeling is that it can overwhelm. And I would respectfully encourage everyone to let themselves feel something fully. You will see that emotions cannot kill you. Your emotional response cannot kill you. I mean, unless your emotional response involves something silly like you know, slamming your head into a wall or something like that, but I trust everybody in this room at least doesn't get into that too much. Your emotional responses are just that. They're emotional responses, and they can be huge. They can flood. Um, if you've ever had that experience where something <coughs> small happens but it turns into something huge in your head but you let the hugeness of the situation guide choices that become silly I'm reminded of this book this children's book called If You Give a Moose a Muffin and it's this cute story if you give a moose a muffin then you might find that in the next thing you know all pandemonium, chaos is occurring all because you gave a moose a muffin, right? That's the 
Cliff's Notes version of the uh, children's story there, okay? You want to check it out, it's very funny, okay? But the point I'm trying to make here is that we go through that too, where something small, a trifle, becomes massive inappropriately. And it leads to suffering because it's all about clinging. It's all about hanging on to an outcome that might be threatened. And then we worry about loss. And then fear ensues. And then, and next thing you know, the defensive patterns can start to come out or, or collapse can start to come out. It, all sorts of uh, uh, negative emotions begin to arise from situations like this. Easy for me to say, but this is the practice. We get curious about that. We get curious about the stories we we're holding. And we stop holding. We begin to watch. And it's mysterious, but there's magic that kind of comes from this. There's magic. And the magic is kind of a peace in the middle of all of it. We start to have a sense of freedom from our anxiety. It's a felt sense of freedom. It's a felt the buoyancy when we're no longer bound by the, the load that we place on our own backs or the loads that we perceive others are putting on us. We are free. We are lighter. We are more facile, nimble, adroit. We can, we can move. We have choice. Even though it sometimes feels choiceless. We can go through all of the emotional responses and we know full well that they are just emotional responses, nothing more. Just an emotional response. I think it was about uh, eight or nine weeks ago, I, I remember I was sharing a story about how um, uh, there's one time I remember very distinctly mom you can back me up on this where I was crying so hard probably around nine years old about third grade second or third grade and I was crying and I was crying and I was in my room I did not want to talk to anybody I was so angry and just rage 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 and then pretty soon after a while and you guys are really smart about this because you just let me kind of stay in your room until you're ready to be with people I hate you hey, get in line okay now <laughs> stay in your room which is exactly the right response get in the line Okay. Slam the door, go in my room, cry, cry, cry. And then there's this amazingly profound sense of peace after all that crying had kind of happened. If you haven't had that experience, try it out. <laughs> Emotions don't kill you. Resisting them will kill you. Resisting emotional responses will tear So, I guess another way I, I, I would uh, I would explain this idea of kind of loss and what we can fear, what can you know engender this fear, what can create this flooding of emotion that freaks us out and so forth, is making sure that the, that we're not so worried about external stuff coming our way. That we're not so worried. We sometimes call them the eight winds, the eight winds in Zen that blow us off center where we're really concerned with getting more praise and avoiding blame. But instead, to 
cares? More success, less failure. Who is it that cares? What is it that cares? More stuff to feel proud of, less stuff to feel ashamed of. What entity is it that cares about this? More happy, less sad. What is it that cares? What is it that has those preferences? Now, it's natural. Of course, all of us want to be happier and only want praise, you know? Less blame, less shame, more success, less failure. Want to feel proud? Sure. But ego wants those things. What is on the other side watching this could not give a rat's patoot about any of it. And we begin to kind of occupy that space spontaneously, effortlessly, the more we weave stillness into our experience. And from that position, there isn't really a sense of loss. And if there's not a sense of loss, there's certainly no sense of fear. And if there's no sense of fear, we're moving through the world from a place of courage. And this changes the world. The courageous among us, even in small ways that really, really change the world for ourselves and for others. And so really with this, uh, speaks to is this is this amazing byproduct of the teaching. It's not just that there's a lack of suffering. Awakening, yes, is, it is a lack of suffering, but it also it also inspires a way of moving through the world that is oriented around courage, around grace, around relaxation or ease. Again and again and again and again and again build a life on these moment-by-moment gifts, these offerings, this generosity of spirit that comes from a very authentic place, very stable, a very powerful place because it doesn't, it's not worried about loss. Therefore, it does not fear. It is brave. It is courageous. Even as it experiences negativity, even as it experiences its own cowardice, no matter what, no matter what, there's this undivided, deep singularity that inspires our moves through the world.
doesn't need anything. What would you say to that? Enlightenment is a person who doesn't need anything. Has but no, has no needs. Has no needs. Yeah, I would be careful about that because I think that the um, uh, on the one hand, I, I, I could say that psychologically, <coughs> spiritually, that there is a fulfillment, a complete and ful uh, utter fulfillment. But but there are teachings that do point to you know an enlightened person doesn't need doesn't need anything. We need food and water to remain enlightened, and the, that extreme is still played out. There are still oh no no they. The, the, the truly enlightened among us don't even need to, uh, you know, they're complete as they are. Uh, there are traditions, like, uh, for instance, in the, um, the sadhus that I ran into in, the, in Nepal, uh, self-denial all the time, I don't need anything, I, you know, almost on the, the verge of starvation and dehydration all the time. Denial, 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 so it can become its own disease. What I would, however, say is that... Uh, um, at the point, at the point of uh, for us to recognize an awakened being, we would find that they are quite happy with very little. But there's not a lot needed. So I would say that you're 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 absolutely on the right track, as long as it doesn't go into its illogical extreme of no need. Um, I hope that kind of makes makes a little bit of sense. Uh, I, I, what keeps coming back is that a man cannot live on bread alone. You know, that there is something. There are there are sustainability of a practice and of a person comes from a very very healthy and balanced negotiation with need. Um, I guess I was also thinking of, say, <clears throat> the image of a Christian saint mm -hmm. who uh, is sacrificed and goes to the, or, or Christ, goes to the sacrifice, some people say, like the bridegroom to his bride. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Open. Vulnerable and at peace. Totally, totally <coughs> all right with whatever. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I kind of like it the more I'm thinking about it. I remember I had a, uh, it was described, uh, um, there was a, a Dharma brother of mine who was asked a question by um, my teacher. <laughs> and he said, Thank you. I have no complaint. And I remember thinking, dang, that's got to be a pretty cool place to be. No complaints. Man, so in other words, all needs met based on the definitions you're kind of offering up. So I think that kind of works in that capacity. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Good one. I like it. Yeah. Um, this, this kind of has been entering my mind as you were talking, and it it makes me realize that some of the most fulfilling and best <coughs> um, experiences I've ever had 
with another person or with a group of people have been those times when the last thing on your mind is trying to create anything. Right. Maybe you're having an open discussion with someone or in a, in a group, and all of a sudden you have this realization that this is wonderful. This is the way it's supposed to be. And there's just a freedom and a release of, of any kind of outcome. Yeah. And it's just in that moment, you're so present and you're so tuned in to everything that's going on yeah. without any intention of getting there. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find yourself right there. Yeah. And you're just open to it all. So I'm a big fan of the news hour. And what you're describing there is very similar to what uh, the physicist Alan Lightman was talking about tonight. Um, they have this really cool thing called, in my humble opinion, on the news hour. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll take thinkers who will throw out you know, something that, they, that they've been churning and burning with. And he's written this book about an experience that he had sailing up in Maine. And he said he's lying on his back. I'm sure you could get it online when you go home. But he's lying on his back and he's looking up at the stars and suddenly, you know, boom, my God, I am part of something much bigger. I have no self-reference point here. I have no, so he clearly had this amazing opening, a, a kind of a, a blast. Uh, but he's a physicist. And, and, and the world is made up of, and the universe is made up of atoms. And so like, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think it's totally reconcilable, but the problem is, as I see it, they still look at it, they, wherever they are, as it's, 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 a, it's a universe of matter. Mm -hmm. It's atoms, but it's also space. In between everything, it, there's space there too. And that space, that's where it gets really cool because that space may in fact be awareness itself. How do we measure that? Well, that might take a, some time. <laughs> but but we've, we keep going back to this idea that they're irreconcilable. I absolutely think that this, this marriage uh, of, uh, of, of, of the, the finite and the infinite is with us all the time, all the time. And I loved hearing him say that. It kind of goes right in line with what you were talking about there. We are, I would say, we are, our, our life is enhanced immeasurably when there's a loss of self. Mm -hmm. You know, and it happens so spontaneously. You know, it's not something we, we try to, we try to have it happen every time on the cushion. Sometimes we're successful. <laughs> left yeah Steve can you go over again um, something I kind of want to burn closer in my head is uh, when you are when you're not present you have fear you are living in your you're, you're putting yourself in the future mm -hmm. you're clinging on to something that is Putting you in that position, an outcome. An outcome. An right. outcome. That's that's the one word that I was trying to live with. It. It's a good one. Yeah. Outcomes. Yeah. Because we're all and it, like I said, it's very natural. Very natural. Sure. Especially in, in the West. There's my goal, and, and and I would argue, set the goal, go for it. But free up the outcome. You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how often you've been in a situation where it's like. You, you want the divine accident to be available to you, you know? Sure. 
And boy, when you make sure that there's no divine accident that's going to happen, you're not going to have much room for the divine. Right. Uh, so, so I think it's really cool. Outcome is really what is the outcome that you are either clinging to or wanting to avoid. Man, there you go. Now you just saw your attachment or attachment light, which is called preference. You know, <laughs> attachment light. Yes. <laughs> But it's true, you know. Yeah, yeah. You want to see? You want? You, all you got to do is just check out your preferences, and boy, they'll lead you right to your attachments if you give them enough gas. Uh, yeah. Now, there. What I mean, you can have attachments at several different levels. Many of the people in this room are aware of my severe attachment to chocolate. <laughs> Guilty. I don't, I don't see that changing, and I don't have a lot of reason for that to change because I have access to chocolate. <laughs> uh, and I also know if I didn't have access to chocolate, it would be one of those, you know the, the show Survivor, where for 39 days you're out with a bunch of people, all who have really severe personality problems, and, and, and they put them all together to see what kind of horrible clashing they can create, and then who's getting voted off this time, and who, uh, so, I was talking to uh, 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 a kid about this recently, and, and said, would you ever do that? And I go, hell no, why not? No chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> you have to pack it, pack it in, and then it melts, or some like you know person person with a personality issue steals it, and then I, I, I get angry, and Buddha goes over there, and I'm like freaking out, and then I get voted <laughs> off the island. There's no way I'd last till the end. I'd be the first one. I'd be the first one voted off. <laughs> Sorry. Did I answer your question, yeah. Steve-O? I, think... I found it in there somewhere. Okay. It's in there somewhere. Outcomes. Outcomes, bro. Right. Okay. Yeah. Dennis, you had your hand up. Did you? Or did I answer it? No. <laughs> no, I, you mentioned something about uh, a difference between bond, a bond and attachment. And I was wondering if you could help. It's not even semantic. It's just... Attachment always connotes for me a grip, and a bond feels like an arm around somebody. More love. Yeah, yeah. more loving, yeah. or com compa yeah, compassion. Yeah, compassion. I don't. It, compassion is one of these words that's thrown around so much. It, yeah. It's it's uh, compassion. I look at as love without any of the hate mixed in with it. Sometimes love can be this close to hate, mm -hmm. and that's because there's so much attachment in it. Compassion is love without any attachment. So you can feel you can feel compassion for the Lafayette postal clerk and your brother, right? Yeah. Equally. I, by the way, I should share with you. I had an incredibly uh, nice exchange with the Lafayette postal clerk. <laughs> I, oh God! Just I was waiting. You know, how you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Good. I like walked out of the parking. But you didn't bond. I did not bond with her. In that moment, there was kind of there was a little bit of a loving bond. She knows me. I know her. We're not gonna, you know. But it, it's it's uh, I think that that I guess really where I was kind of going with that was that that bond a bond is something that we that co arises from a place of care 
okay? There's, 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 and I'm trying not to use the word love in there, but, mm-hmm. but it co-arises out of a place of shared understanding with care. Um, and I just, I, I feel that that's, 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 that's healthy. Because there's not a clinging to that. Um, I remember reading this, uh, the uh, 70s kind of avant-garde artist, Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson, both of them. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, but they, they together put together some just really interesting, interesting musical expression over time. And uh, I guess it was the description of his death. He was a Buddhist. And the description of his death and how Laurie Anderson was there um, talking to him the whole time as he was kind of exiting, so to speak. This beautiful, just beautiful uh, 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 expression of tenderness and the bond that they shared as a couple for however many years. I mean, I know they were they went out for a while when they were younger and then split, and, but just that it, it was so. I remember so so beautiful to me how how much care, but surrender and letting go there was. I mean, she was absolutely just ushering him and his spirit into the next realm, whatever that is. So uh, uh, it was inspiring, inspiring to me. If I find it, I'll, I'll send it. Um, I think it's in the New York Times. I'll check for you. Thank you so much for coming today.